You're listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This series is designed as a companion for Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. Grab your copy on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or wherever books are sold. Today we begin a special series entitled The Call for Courage, because this is not about a book. This is about the movement of courageous humility that needs to happen in our nation. I'm not going to apologize for something that I literally believe God put on my heart for you. Not too long ago, my wife and I were in our kitchen, and I felt something welling up inside me for a number of days. Apparently, my wife did too. I didn't know it at the time, but I turned to her and I said, honey, I feel like we're pregnant. And she looked at me without hesitating and said, I do too. I'm not into repeating the life of Abraham. I don't mean that kind of pregnancy. We just felt that something was on the horizon, something significant. We didn't know exactly what. And I knew that I had to write. There was something inside of me I had to write. I was compelled to write. And I said, I got to go away and I have to write. I was concerned about the direction of our nation, concerned about the talking heads that we often see on television or we listen to on the radio. They seem to just stir the pot. They talk about how difficult of a situation, what troubling times we live in, and they don't offer any solutions. Even my pastor friends who mean well talk about how difficult a situation we're in as a nation, but very rarely do they provide the solutions If all we do is talk about the problems we're facing and we don't offer solutions, we're not doing anything to help the situation. In fact, all we could be doing is making it worse by causing people to feel worse about a situation that they feel it's feudalism, there's nothing I can do. Well, right around that same time, I said, you know, I've got to have some place where I can go. A couple from our church came up to me unannounced. They didn't know that about that discussion, at least not that I know of, in our kitchen Unless they have our house bugged. They came up to me and they said, hey, we have a cabin not too far from here. It's fairly remote. And if you want to go away anytime and write, you can use it to write. I said, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what I want to do. So I set this appointment to go and to write at this cabin for a week, to take a week off and to write at this cabin. And wouldn't you know that two weeks later, on the anniversary of my mother's birthday, I got an unsolicited email from the Alive Literary Agency, a Christian literary agency in the U.S., and they said, we've been watching you. That's kind of scary when somebody sends you an email and says, we've been watching you. They said, we've been watching you, reading what you write, watching your interviews on TV, and we're wondering where books might fall into this. Would you be interested in writing a book? I said, as a matter of fact, I just set aside a week to go and to write a book, a couple of chapters of a book, and a proposal that I was going to send to a literary agency just like you, because these days you need a literary agent to be able to get a publisher in order to get published. 17 days later, I was in that cabin, banging out for that first week what became the first draft of the book that is now out by Thomas Nelson Publishers, A Call for Courage. And many of you have been reading it. Many people are reading it around the nation. Many people are giving the book away to other people. And that's the way the book needs to be used. There are a lot of other ways that I could spend my time than simply writing a book. If I'm going to write a book, I want it to be read by everybody because what I write would be something that I felt compelled that everybody needs to read and put into practice in their own life. I said the same thing to my literary agent. And that book became a call for courage. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but when you look around in our nation, 
It seems like the religion of power, truth, and love, Christianity, is now, it's now been rebranded. Some of it by what's happening in the media, some of it by what's happening in our own lives, we've rebranded ourselves. Instead of us being known as a religion of power, truth, and love, we're now known as a religion of weakness, phoniness, and hatred. Now, how did that happen? I don't know about you, but I think it's time we take our branding back. I think it's time for a second reformation in the United States of America, a new great awakening in our nation. And if that's to be, you don't want to be on the sidelines watching it. You don't want to be on the sidelines watching other people move with God. You don't want to hear about a great awakening that's happening out there. You want to be in the thick of the great awakening. And that great awakening needs to happen in your own life, needs to happen in my life, needs to happen in your family, needs to happen in my family, needs to happen in this church, needs to happen in churches around the nation, families around the nation. It needs to happen, not yesterday, but now. Our nation's in big trouble. Somehow, Christianity has become known as the anti-religion. You've heard about the antichrist? If you're a believer for any length of time, you know about the Antichrist. Well, somehow, how do we get known as the anti-religion? What do I mean by that? I mean, we're known for issues when we're against them. Something happens, you hear from the Christians. We're against that. We don't stand for that. But if, unless something crops up in the media, unless something crops up in world events, you rarely hear from us. Brothers and sisters, it's time that once again, we are known for something biblical. We are known for something epic. We are known for something God-sized so that the world looks at us and says, I want what you have. I want who you have. People should be looking at us and want to live the way we are living. But instead, in many cases, I say this to our chagrin, I say this to our disgrace, in many cases, they look at how we're living. They look at what we're doing. They look at what we're saying and they say, uh-uh, 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 no way. I don't want to be like you. I don't want your Jesus. I don't want your Christianity. I don't want any of that stuff. And it's not because we're being rebranded necessarily in the media, although a lot of that is happening. Some of it is the result of the way we are handling our faith, or I should say mishandling our faith. And today I want to talk about three things that you should be known for as a follower of Jesus Christ. Three things that you should be known for. Three things that your family should be known for. Three things that your church should be known for. Are you ready? Three things you should be known for. The first is courageous humility or humble courage. You should be known as a person characterized by courageous humility or humble courage. Secondly, you should be known as a person characterized by joy. You should be characterized by joy. And third, you should be a person who is characterized as someone who embraces and promotes racial equality. Racial equality. Now, we could talk about a lot of things today that we should be known for, but I want to talk about those three things in particular because I think those three things are most seriously needed at this particular time in the United States of America. Courageous humility, joy, and treating people 
with racial equality. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians in chapter four. As we look at this idea of courageous humility or humble courage, what you should be characterized by, what your family should be known for, what a church should be known for, courageous humility or humble courage. Look with me at Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 16. Look what they say. And he, God, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice maturity is the objective here. We're not supposed to stay as infants in Christ. We're supposed to grow and mature in spiritual maturity. That's the objective, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. If you're not careful today, you're going to be tossed around by some headline that comes up a nonsensical thing that you see in the media or a wind of doctrine that comes, you're going to be tossed around. Be careful that you're not carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. That's the phrase that we're going to zero in on here. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the body of Christ, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love. Both ingredients are necessary in the divine equation. We're not called to simply speak the truth. Paul says, if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. I'm an annoyance. And we Christians need to own this reality. In many circles, we are known for embracing truth. And we get uptight when we see truth being twisted. We should be concerned when truth is twisted. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's the way that we express that concern that needs a tune-up. We're not just to speak the truth, we're to speak the truth with love. Listen, people who disagree with the truth, who disagree with the teachings of Christianity, who disagree with the Bible, they're not our enemy. It's the principalities and the powers in this dark world that we live in, in in the heavenly forces, they're the enemy. We're supposed to love our enemy. That's one of the primary tenets of Christianity. What good is it if you just love those who are good to you? Even the world does that. That's nothing significant. That's nothing that's eye-catching. That's nothing attention-getting. But when you love your enemies and you do good to those who want to harm you, that makes you unique. That makes you a Christ follower. The Christians were called Christians for the very first time. Acts chapter 11, you can look there on your own time. They were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. And that's a reference to them demonstrating Christ-like behavior, Christ-like character. And one of the things we see Jesus doing repeatedly in all four Gospels, all four Gospels, is that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The people he spoke most strongly against were the hypocrites, Pharisees, and the Sadducees, those who knew the Old Testament, those who knew the Word of God, 
had the word of God memorized, but weren't putting it into practice. They did not understand that the purpose of scripture was to help people love God as demonstrator or manifest by loving your neighbor as yourself. We're not only to speak the truth. We are to speak the truth in love. And if you don't love the people you're speaking the truth to, you're missing the point. It's not just what we say that convinces people, it's how we say what we say that convinces people one way or the other whether or not they want to embrace the same Jesus that we say we love and that we're following. In many instances, we have to repent of trying to get other people to follow a Jesus we're not following too closely. Jesus loved sinners. Yes, he hated sin. You should hate sin too, but you should love the sinner. That's exactly what you were, helpless, incapable of doing anything but sinning until the light of Jesus Christ shined in your heart and the scales fell from your eyes and you understood that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life and you accepted him as your savior, the master of your life. You would be a sinner still to this day, dead in your sins, dead in your transgressions, apart from God if it wasn't for the intervention of God. We are not just to speak the truth, folks. We are to speak the truth in love. And we're not just to be loving and to neglect the truth. There's a whole thing that's out there today. There's a whole thing that we're hearing today about tolerance. Got to be tolerant, got to be tolerant, got to be tolerant, got to be tolerant. And Christians are known as haters. And here's where the media has it wrong. Here's where the world has it wrong. Because we believe in moral absolutes. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said that. All we're doing is repeating what Jesus said. And so we're not haters by saying that we're lovers. Listen, the most loving thing you can do to somebody is tell them the truth when you know what it is. That's the most loving thing you can do. The most hateful thing you can do to somebody is withhold the truth when you know what it is. If you know what the truth is and you withhold the truth from somebody, you are actually hating that person. Listen, Jesus says it in John chapter 8, verse 32. You know the scripture. Let's say it all together. The one word. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The most hateful thing you can do for somebody is know the truth and withhold it from them. So who cares if the world says you're a hater by telling them the truth? They've got it backwards. We're living in a bizarro world today. Black is white. White is black. Up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left. Everything's topsy-turvy. But as for you and as for me, you keep your spiritual compass that's based on the person and the works of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. We are to speak the truth in love. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Be passionate about both. Don't compromise on the truth. Don't withhold the truth from people. They need to hear the truth. And you know what? They might never come with you to church. They might come with you to church if you simply invite them. Don't disqualify people. Invite your friend to church next week. I think we've got a pretty good church here. I think we're presenting the truth. I think we're helping people get set free. You know that as well because you keep coming The light bulbs are going on for you. Don't just speak the truth. Do it with love. It's not just what we say. It's how we say it. It's not just what we say. It's how we live. People need to see truth and love packaged together. And when truth and love travel together, you know what that is? You know what truth and love equal? Truth and love equal courage. 
That's the definition of courage. Or the qualification, as I like to say it, humble courage. Courageous humility. When truth and love travel together, there you have humble courage or courageous humility. And if you haven't noticed, our nation needs a movement of courageous humility like we've never seen before. If that movement's going to take place, you want to be part of it. You want to be in at the ground level of a movement of God, a move of courageous humility in our nation. And that movement needs to be characterized by truth on one hand, the word of God, uncompromising to the truth of God's word and delivered with love for the people who need to hear the truth. When truth and love travel together, there you always have courageous humility, humble courage. And that's what you should be known for. You should be known as a person who delivers the truth with love, who lives the truth with love so that when people talk to you, when people interact with you, they know that you love them. They know that God loves them. They know that you're not a sellout, but that you're sold out to Jesus Christ. They know that you're sold out. They know, they feel, they sense, they understand that you actually care for their soul. You actually care for their eternal destiny and you actually care for the quality of their life here and now. When truth and love travel together, there you have courageous humility, humble courage, and you need to be known as a person who is characterized by courageous humility, humble courage. You speak the truth in love. You love people by having a deep desire to have them set free because you deliver the truth. You deliver the truth to them. Listen, black words matter. Black words matter. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28. You'll understand exactly what I mean by that. The Great Commission says this. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some of the things that I have commanded you. That is not what it says, but yet that's how many of us treat the teachings of Jesus. Jesus actually says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, what did Jesus command the people to do? What was the playbook that Jesus continually referred to in his teaching, in his preaching, in his process of setting people free? You know what Jesus' go-to handbook was to set people free? His teachings, Jesus didn't pull his teachings out of a vacuum. They have a source, they have a root, and that root is found in the Old Testament. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says... Still says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, Jesus is pleading. He's saying, I say to you, truly, I'm not lying to you. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other, what commandments? Of the Old Testament. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Teaches what? The Old Testament. 
See, people today think, well, just the red letters of Jesus. Well, Jesus doesn't say that because it's not in red letters in my New Testament. Listen, black words matter. The words that Jesus was using to teach the people came from the Old Testament. There was no red letter edition of the Old Testament back then. Scrolls and parchments were used. And Jesus himself is saying, listen, not as much as a period in terms of the English language, because the Hebrew language has what we would look at it. We would say, well, that looks like an apostrophe. That looks like a, a period, yodes and tittles, dots and dashes. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He says in the Hebrew, if you take away one of those yodes or tittles, the equivalent of like what looks like a apostrophe or a period, you can change the whole meaning of a word in the Hebrew language. It's such a complex, beautiful, rich language. And Jesus is saying, listen, let me help you understand how important the black words are, the teaching of the scripture that I've been teaching you about that none of them will pass away, not even so much as a yod or a tittle, not even so much as the least stroke of a writing instrument will pass away. I've been teaching you from this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' go-to handbook, what he taught from was the Old Testament, and he taught as one who had authority, putting his own teachings, his own interpretations of those Old Testament teachings, those writings, on equal footing with the teaching of God. No Pharisee, no Sadducee could do that. So you have to understand that truth does matter. We're living in a day where relativism is now ruling and reigning. Well, that's not my truth. I don't see it that way. You don't see it that way. Well, I think the Bible says this. Well, I think it says that. Well, I don't think that that applies any longer today. Well, I don't think this applies any longer today. And what we're doing is we're recreating God in our own image. To tell a partial truth is to tell a whole lie. You need to be known as a person who speaks the truth with love. When truth and love travel together, there you always have courageous humility. Stop apologizing for the teachings of Jesus. Stop apologizing for the words of Scripture. Understand and never forget that the truth still sets people free. You need to be known as a person who is characterized as being courageously humble. Humbly courageous. A person who speaks the truth, lives the truth in love. Can I get an amen for that? Can I get an amen? That's the first thing you need to be known for. Second thing you need to be known for, we go way back into the Old Testament to the book of Nehemiah. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah is in the process of rebuilding the wall that was destroyed around Jerusalem. And in verse 10, look at what is said here, all right? Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day, is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, the absence of joy in your life can be a symptom that you're relying upon somebody else's strength other than God's. The absence of joy in your life can be a symptom that you are relying upon somebody's strength, your own strength perhaps, other than than God's strength. The joy of the Lord was Nehemiah's strength, the strength of his people. The joy of the Lord is still, needs to be your 
strength. It's true in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. Look with me at John's gospel, John chapter 15, beginning in verse one. See, you need to be known as a person who is characterized by joy, characterized by joy. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a down day from time to time or a down week. I'm speaking to you as somebody, I almost died four times, right? I'm a cancer survivor. I was almost kidnapped, or at least there were luring attempts, if not kidnapping attempts, twice, maybe three times when I was a kid, about four or five years old. I know what it's like to be depressed and discouraged and down. I'm not saying that you cannot have a down day or a down week or a down year or a down couple of years, depending on what kind of trauma you're facing. But joy is deep-seated peace in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Deep-seated peace in the midst of difficulty and hardship. And you need to be a person, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be known as a person who's characterized by joy. Doesn't mean that you're always walking around with some phony baloney smile on your face. How you doing? I'm doing great. Inside, you're wilting away. Lost my job. My wife's divorcing me. Not my wife, but not that I know of anyway. Honey, are you thinking about divorcing me? Lost my job. Lost my wife. Just got a bad health diagnosis. How you doing? I'm doing great. You might not be doing great, but you need to have joy, that deep-seated peace that is based on the joy found in the Lord, not your circumstances. It is supernaturally possible. It is supernaturally possible. If you look in the book of Acts, you'll see that they rejoiced immediately after being persecuted because they were considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. That's amazing. I find that absolutely amazing. And if they could have the ability, if they had the ability to rejoice in the midst of that type of persecution, let me tell you, there ain't nothing that you're going through, nothing I'm going through that's bigger than that. If they could rejoice, it's counterintuitive, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, courtesy of Jesus. You can have a deep-seated peace in the midst of whatever circumstance you might be facing. It's not based on your own strength. See, the absence of joy can be the evidence that you're depending upon your own strength instead of God's strength. Look with me at John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, and he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Sometimes that pruning process is painful. Where God is taking away things in your life, circumstances in your life, to do what? To cause you to be more like Jesus in character. To cause you to depend upon the joy of the Lord as your strength, all right? Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Sounds amazingly similar to the joy of the Lord is my strength, doesn't it? Of course it does. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you." By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The evidence of being a follower of Jesus is bearing fruit. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wow. Look at that. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is one of the first things things that goes when we turn our back on God. When you stop abiding in Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the red letters and the black letters, when you stop abiding in Jesus, you stop bearing fruit and you lose your joy. You stop bearing fruit and you lose your joy. You have Jesus' word to base that on. Where is your joy? How is it that the religion of joy Oftentimes, when you see Christians and you meet Christians, they don't look too joyful. They don't sound too joyful. In fact, they don't even have to say anything. You can look at the expression on their face, and they're dead giveaways. They're dead giveaways. They don't look joyful at all. Right about now is a great time to take a commercial break. Let's take a commercial break here. Come up for air. How many of you have thought from time to time about starting your own business? You dream about being somebody who works for yourself, maybe making a little bit of money on the side, making, maybe supplementing your income. You hear about that a lot these days because times are difficult. They're tough, right? Supplementing your income, making a little bit more money to help make ends meet. But some of us actually fantasize about not just making a little bit more income on the side, but replacing our current means of employment and working for ourselves. We dream about, boy, I wish I could work for myself. You know, many Christians have a tremendous entrepreneurial potential. Tremendous entrepreneurial potential, but it will never be realized. It'll never come to reality because they spend so much time in negativity, so much energy in negativity. And you can tell by the look on their face, they look like they've been sucking on lemons all day long. The expression on our faces, it gives us away. We don't look like we're filled with joy. We look like we've been sucking on lemons for so long. You know, negativity is the reason why people have lost their jobs. It's the reason why people get divorced. It's the reason why people don't have friends. It's the reason why people have psychosomatic illnesses and problems that they need to go see a psychologist. Listen, you need to go to the great physician. His name is Jesus. He provides joy and that your joy would be full. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Remember, the absence of joy can be an indication that you're relying on somebody else's strength rather than God's. So many Christians have a tremendous entrepreneurial potential, but it's squandered because they spend so much time in negativity. Their face looks like they've been sucking on lemons. But if you could take those same Christians and divert that negativity and harness it to become positivity and help them stop sucking on lemons and turn that into making lemonade, Boy, they could start selling lemonade. They could be multimillionaires. They could get out of debt. They could give money to other people. You want to talk about funding world missions? You want to talk about funding and ministry? You could be a multimillionaire multiple times over, and you could help people who have financial need left and right, all for this reason and this reason only, that you take that entrepreneurial spirit, that desire to do something meaningful and significant with your life, and you take that negativity, you turn it into positivity, you stop sucking on lemons, you start making lemonade, and you start being a blessing to other people. You need to be known as a person who's filled with joy. You know what? There are going to be some conversations today over lunchtime. There are going to be some conversations later on today and in the course of this week. You need to do a checkup with your spouse, your significant other, with your children, with your parents, and you need to ask them, 
hey, would you characterize me as a person who looks like I'm sucking on lemons or as somebody who's making lemonade? Would you characterize me as a person who is filled with joy, the strength of the Lord, the joy of the Lord? Or would you characterize me as somebody who is obviously depending upon my own strength? Am I giving myself away? Am I shooting myself in the foot? Honey, sweetie pie, my love, whatever you call your hoppity hop, whatever you call. (laughs) Is the joy of the Lord my strength or have I substituted something else For the joy of the Lord. Would you please love me enough to speak the truth in love? Would you please be humble enough and courageous enough to speak the truth to me? Am I characterized as somebody who is filled with the joy of the Lord? If not, you need to repent. Oh my goodness, rebrand yourself. I don't care how many years you've been sucking on lemons. Would you please start making lemonade? It's a great time to start walking with God. It's a great time for Christianity to be known once again as the religion of joy, not joylessness. You need to be known as somebody who is courageously humble. You need to be known as somebody who is filled with the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. And today's a great day. Right now is a great opportunity for you to rediscover or perhaps discover for the very first time that Jesus offers you joy. And if you're not walking in joy as the overall characteristic of your life, we all have moments of temporary insanity. We all do. But if your life is not characterized by joy, something is wrong. You need a rebranding from the inside out. It's not just a coat of paint that you need on the outside. Christianity does not need a rebranding on the outside. We need a spiritual awakening from the inside out. And you need to be known as a person who's filled with joy. Well, how does that joy come? Here's how it comes. You abide with Jesus. Listen, you can't abide in Jesus if you're not in the word that Jesus wrote. You need to spend time in the word of God on a daily basis consistently. And I can guarantee from my own mistakes, from my own failures in my own life, imagine that your pastor's going to share from some of his own mistakes and his own failures. Listen, 99% of what I share on any given time that I'm speaking is because of my own failures. If my sharing my failures helps you succeed, I'll do it every single time I have the chance. Every single time. When I am lacking joy, it's because my time with God in the Bible has been suffering. And you know what? Same is true for you. Same is true for you. The more time you spend in the Bible with a commitment on putting it into practice, notice I always qualify that. It's not just the amount of time you spend in the Bible that's going to change you. The Pharisees would spend a lot of time in the Bible, had the Bible Old Testament memorized, and yet they were the ones who were called whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Spending time in the Bible is not going to change you. You could spend time in McDonald's all this week. You're not going to become a hamburger, all right? It's not going to happen. (laughs) We love Brown's Orchard, Brown's Orchard Market. We go there often. In the course of the week, we have their breakfast. You know, my favorite breakfast at Brown's, I never even look at the menu anymore. I know I want two eggs over easy. I want their sausage because their sausage links are delicious. I'm now starting to shake it up a little bit. I don't do rye toast anymore. I did white toast earlier this week. Two slices of apple and some hash browns. That's what I get at Brown's Market. All of that, I think it's $5.95. I don't even look at the price anymore. I just know what I want. It's delicious. It's good. And it's tasty. Why did I bring that up? I don't know why I brought that up. (laughs) 
I distracted myself with that. Let's hurry up and end in prayer and go get breakfast at Brown's Market. I could go to Brown's Orchard Market, their cafe, every day of the week, and I'm not going to turn it into a sausage. It's not happening. You spend time in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to transform your life. What's going to transform your life is a commitment to putting the Word of God into practice. That's why the Pharisees were left out of the agenda of God. Not one Pharisee was chosen to be among the 12 apostles. See, you need to be a person who's characterized by joy, and joy comes as a byproduct of spending time with Jesus in his word. You'll say, well, I'm not into that religious stuff. I'm not into that Bible. I'm just a spiritual person. I spend time with God on my own. No, you don't. Don't deceive yourself. You might think you're walking with God all day long, but if you're not in the word of God, it's not possible to abide in Jesus. The joy of the Lord that becomes your strength is a byproduct of walking with God. If a person abides in me, he or she will bear much fruit. What if you don't abide in Jesus? You won't bear much fruit. Joy is a byproduct of spending time in the word of God with a bent toward putting it into action. You need to be known as a person of humble courage, courageous humility. You need to be a person who speaks the truth in love, who lives the truth in love, who sets people free by sharing the truth with them, by demonstrating with your lifestyle. You need to be a person who's characterized by courage, courageous humility. Secondly, you need to be a person who's characterized by joy. Don't walk around looking like you're sucking on lemons. Take that entrepreneurial spirit, turn it into positivity. Now listen, you might say to yourself, well, I can't always be positive. Well, listen, Negativity never helps a situation. Positivity, at least, has the opportunity of changing a situation. Negativity only hurts situations. It's like rubbing salt. You ever been around somebody who's negative? Yeah, but listen, my cup is half full. You want to see it as half empty? Don't come to Brown's Orchard Market with me. This world is an increasingly dark and distasteful place filled with negativity. Don't contribute to it. World doesn't need the help of Christians contributing negativity to it. We need positivity that is a byproduct of spending time with Jesus. Rising above your circumstances, not letting the circumstances dictate your happiness, your peace. Your peace is found in a person Your peace is found in a savior. Your peace is found in the reality that somebody who was absolutely sinless decided to take it upon himself at the request of his father. Jesus was not forced to do this by the father. He was offered the opportunity because he was obedient and so inseparable from his father. Jesus said, you know what? It would be my pleasure to do your will, father. Your peace is based on the fact that somebody who was without sin took it upon himself to take all of your sin and all the sin of the world on himself, be nailed to that cross, not murdered. He gave himself. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it voluntarily because I love the people of the world, because I love my father. Your peace is based on a person who finished it all on the cross, not on your circumstances. That's where joy comes from. 
That's where joy comes from. It comes from abiding in the truths of God, the truth of who Jesus is. You need to be known as a person who's characterized by joy. And listen, we got enough people in this church right here. We have enough people in this church right here that if we take to heart this simple truth that we are to be characterized as people of joy, the spiritual awakening that needs to happen in the church and the body of Christ and in this nation will be underway today, right now. It'll be underway. You just need to say to the Lord, Lord, if that's me, I surrender to you right now. I surrender to you right now. I say yes to you right now. I want the joy of the Lord to be my strength. Lord, forgive me. My absence of joy is telling. It reveals to me, it reveals to me that I have been depending upon my own strength rather than yours because the joy of the Lord is where your strength is found. You need to be a person who's known for being filled with supernatural joy. Finally, you need to be a person who's characteristically, you characteristically treat people with racial equality. Haven't you noticed that the cross casts a large shadow, that nobody in the human race is left outside of that shadow? We're all members of the human race. Look with me, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's not a white Jesus and a black Jesus and an Asian Jesus and American Indian Jesus and India Indian Jesus. There's one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus have to be born into the human race as fully human and fully God because he had to be a member of the human race so that God could accept a substitute sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, a one-for-one sacrifice. Jesus died for every member of the human race. There's not a different Jesus for every member of the human race. There's one Jesus for every member of the human race. Don't we understand that the whole human race came from Adam and Eve? People will say today, well, I don't believe in an Adam and Eve. Well, go ahead. You don't have to. Nobody's compelling you to do that. I'll love you even if you disagree about it because I'm a person who's characterized by courageous humility. You're not going to rob my joy. I just feel bad because you're getting robbed of the joy that you would have if you would embrace the truth that God created all the ethnic groups on the face of the earth through one couple, Adam and Eve. So, what does that tell us? You should be for racial equality. It's obvious. If you're not for racial equality, you're not reading the same Bible. Verse 15, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning no one, no ethnic group is superior to another ethnic group. No ethnic group is inferior to another ethnic group. The world should be looking to Christians today. The United States, with all this turmoil that we're having racially in our nation, Christians should be standing up and speaking out and saying, Racial inequality, are, are you out of your mind? You're certainly out of your Bible. Bible doesn't pr- present racial inequality. The Bible presents racial equality. Jesus died for the sins of black people to the same degree that he died for the sins of white people. Jesus died for the sins of 
Asian people to the same degree that he died for the sins of black people. One died for all. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning reconciled with God, unified with God, and therefore we should be, we could be, we must be unified with each other. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's true whether you're black or white or yellow or red or any color in between. Wafer for that matter. Whatever color you might be, whatever ethnicity you might be, if you are in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are a member of the human race, redeemed, reconciled with God Almighty, and therefore you can be reconciled. You can have unity. You can have racial equality, an attitude of racial equality with anybody regardless of their skin color. In fact, you must, you must, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will have that attitude. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says this, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Racism is wrong. Racial equality is right because all people are equal at the foot of the cross. One died for all. There is only one Savior for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world, and that Savior has a name. That Savior has a face. His name is Jesus Christ. You need to be known as a person who is characterized by courageous humility. You need to be known as a person who is characterized by the joy of the Lord, the supernatural joy of the Lord. And you need to be known as a person who promotes, embraces, and spreads this idea of racial equality. It's high time that we took our branding back as followers of Jesus Christ. It's high time that we experience a spiritual awakening from the inside out that needs to happen in our nation. And it's high time that we stop waiting for somebody else to be the hope and change that needs to happen. Real change begins not in the White House, brothers and sisters. It begins in God's house among God's people. Anybody up for that? Anybody interested in that kind of change? I say let's go for it. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. You can get more resources just like this through the app and website, too. 